There is no shortage of photographers who dedicate time and money to a personal project. Some of these projects may last for months or even years, but few of these projects demonstrate the selfless commitment of today's guest, Gerd Ludwig. For the last several decades, this National Geographic photographer has told the story surrounding the nuclear accident at Chernobyl. When the rest of the world thought it long over, Gerd captures the ongoing price that ordinary people are forced to pay when things go wrong. Coincidentally, he was actually in Chernobyl during the disaster at the Fukushima nuclear power plant in Japan, making his work both poignant and timely. His images, which are now available in a new iPad app, are stark, raw, and incredibly moving. Through the lens of Gerd Ludwig, the world is able to be a witness to a place and a time few will ever see or experience. Well, Gerd, welcome, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a real honor to have a chance to, to speak with you. Thanks for having me. I've, I've been admiring your work for a very, very long time. So to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you is just, uh, is, 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 I'm really excited about it. Um, there's a lot that I could talk to you about, but I think that I'm going to keep the focus on the conversation on, on your work in Chernobyl. You recently come out with, a, with an app, and it's called The Long Shadow of Chernobyl. And you've revisited this place uh, specifically at least three times since the early 90s. But I want to start off with your first visit. The reactor accident happened in 1986, but it wasn't until the early 90s that you actually... It was uh, not until 1993 that I entered for the very first time. So when you first arrived there, like many of us, you, you'd heard and read a lot about what had happened and the impact that it had with the people and the environment. But when you first walked into that area, that can, into that area that had been uh, evacuated and, and, and such. What was your personal emotional experience to, to seeing something that you'd only heard about until then? Let me backtrack even a bit more. When the accident happened, I uh, was traveling and it took me a while to really, in 1986, realize the full scale of it. It only became obvious to me when friends in Germany evacuated their wives and children, pregnant wives specifically, even away from Germany to the Netherlands to be further away from the accident. That's when it really hit home for me. It took then until 1993 for me to enter for the first time. It was a very eerie situation because there were these checkpoints and we lived in a hotel that was not even a uh, motel-type uh, structure, just erected briefly after uh, the accident, and nobody wanted to let us shoot the real situations. At that point, I talked to the militia, and the militia in charge of the zone really understood 
what I wanted to do. And they gave me the permission, whereas the administration of the zone itself tried to restrict me a lot. So I really got access by means of that conflict between the administration mm. and the militia of the zone. The militia of the zone actually gave me a school bus and drove me around in the zone. And they introduced me to those people that at that point already had returned back into the zone. The zone was evacuated. There were a total of 150,000 people that were evacuated from the villages. Outside of the zone, there were an additional 100,000 evacuated. But the elderly had come back because they wanted to rather die on their own contaminated soil than of a broken heart in an anonymous city suburb. They were called illegal returnees at the time, and often they were chased by the authorities to leave. But later on over the years, the authorities have understood their purpose to just live out their lives in their villages amongst all the devastation and uh, accepted them and let them live their lives. Am, am I correct in, in thinking that you only had a limited time there, though? Was it only about two weeks that you had there initially? Initially, I was there for two weeks. During later visits, I was able to stay there for a limited period of time, like 10 days. Then I had to leave the zone, and then I returned afterwards. There are also, since 1993 and over the years, there have been people working in the zone, but they work on two-week-on, two-week-off shifts so that nobody stays actually in the zone uh, for longer than two weeks at a time. And I had to adhere to that. Even my time was more restricted. So I had to go outside of the zone. I then traveled uh, to parts of Belarus, White Russia, mm -hmm. to take pictures in the homes of children for children and orphanages, and then return back into the zone to cover the work that was done in the zone uh, to cover the returnees and the health consequences in, inside the zone mm -hmm. as well. It's fascinating that you go in there to try and to tell the story of what of what happened there. And it's it was such a challenge because the government itself was not upfront about what happened. They delayed notifying anyone about outside of the, the country until three days later when workers in a nuclear factory in Sweden detected radiation on their on their shoes and when they were entering their facilities the alarms went off yeah. when they entered not when they came out of their facilities yeah and you can and and you write about the fact that as far as people who have died as a direct effect of the accident that official tallies are like no more than 50 because they give other diagnoses for whatever ailments these people may have suffered, even if it's directly attributable to that. So how in an environment where there's all this obfuscation happening, 
can you as a photographer go in and be able to tell the truth of not just the place, but the lives of the people who have been impacted by it? It's a kind of a motto that I have when I deal with authorities. No is not an option. <laughs> so I go in and I try to convince them and I, I don't leave. I come back the next day and I say, look, you need to let me go there. You want to get rid of me? Just say yes. Mm. Otherwise, I'm, I'll be sitting back here tomorrow again. And I'm in a very lucky situation, specifically when I work for National Geographic magazine. I have the luxury of working with a stringer that does a lot of that work for me. Um, while I am out shooting, he is preparing for the next access. And you talk about him because you've worked with him for over 20, 20 years. Yeah, on, I have an uh, assistant uh, who also acts as interpreter mm -hmm. uh, and the stringer. And so the stringer creates the possibility for me to get access for the next day while I'm out shooting with my assistant. So how valuable is having someone like that to being able to get the access that you need to be able to make the photograph? It is crucial. And I've worked with these guys for many, many years. They know my working style. And we uh, hang out in the evenings together and discuss the work for the next day. I generally get my assistance for all assignments in the field. It is not important that they know a lot about the technical uh, aspects of photography. They need to have the, the people and the research skills. So what, what was involved? You first got into the reactor, I think, in 2008? Uh, 2005. 2005. 2005. So. Uh, and in 2005, the thawing of the bureaucratic restrictions, uh, the thawing of the, in the politics actually allowed me to venture deeper into the uh, reactor than any Western still photographer. It was an incredibly eerie situation. Um, you have to imagine when you enter the reactor, you have to have your passport first. You give away your passport to the authorities. Then you get changed for the first time. You put on disposable protective gear, boot covers, and first of all, you, you, you strip down to your underwear. You get rid of your clothing, then you put on that stuff. Then you go to the next checkpoint where you put on additional protective gear, thick three millimeter, four millimeter thick uh, sheets of protective gear, gloves, masks, helmets, and then you, you finally are allowed to enter uh, into what I call the belly of the beast. Yeah. And there, at that time, the workers were only allowed to work one shift of 15 minutes per day. Now, I'm following them through dimly lit tunnels, uh, strewn with wires, tripping over steel and debris to get to a point where we then maybe have six, seven minutes to shoot. And then our dosimeters and Geiger counters start beeping a very eerie concert reminding us that our time was up. So within this short period of time, you know you have to take a meaningful picture 
of an environment that I might ever never ever be able to return to. I, I can't. I can't imagine doing that. I, I think that most people would think about the fact that you're in an environment where you're putting your health and your life at risk. And like you said, you only have six minutes, and you have to be sort of clear those thoughts out of your head and go, I need to take those six minutes and make a photograph that achieves everything that I'm trying to achieve, that makes all this risk that I'm taking worth it. So how do you psych yourself up or what kind of thinking do you have to put yourself through to make sure that you make the most out of that limited time? You have to totally focus on the task ahead of you. You're in a different kind of a mental state at that point. And you have to eliminate the fear of danger, but you have to allow the feeling to come through and to channel that feeling through the camera into an image. I was able to enter three times at the time, uh, repeatedly during these visits, and I went back again in 2011. But we do this on behalf of otherwise voiceless victims. Like many of my colleagues, I do the same thing. They risk their lives, they risk their health for important stories to be told that would otherwise not be told. You were in a recent interview you had with uh, Douglas Kirkland, you made the statement that fear is necessary for me to do my best work. And this is obviously a very extreme example of that, but I think you were speaking overall as well. And I'd like you to talk a little more about that sort of sensibility, why fear and contending with fear, why it's so important to what you do as a photographer. I was in, in that interview, I was not talking about the fear of something physical. Mm-hmm. I was talking about the fear of not succeeding in really portraying and showing what is out there. The fear of not living up to my own expectations uh, during an assignment. It is important that I take every new assignment or every photographic project and go in there with a certain fear of a failure the fear of failure, because that drives me to give my very best work. If I go in there and say, oh, it's a piece of cake, I probably will not be able to give my best. Mm. Does that fear that you have about whether or not you can pull it off or not influence the projects or the assignments you, you end up choosing? Do you go, I'm feeling a little bit resistance to this, I'm feeling a little fear, so that's probably a sign for me to do it? Absolutely, yes, yes. Okay. When you returned in, in 2011, which is last year, what were you hoping to achieve with this latest visit that you hadn't done with the previous two visits to, uh, to the site? I did not want the story to be forgotten. When I decided to return for the 20, uh, before the 25th anniversary, I 
had contacted a lot of magazines, including National Geographic, uh, whether we should do an updated story. With National Geographic, I totally understood that they didn't want to do it because we had done a story five years prior to that. But other magazines said, oh, no, Chernobyl, nuclear power, it's an old story. It's, you know, nobody was interested anymore. So upon the advice of Brand and my studio manager, I looked into Kickstarter, which was then the largest crowdfunding website and still is. But it was a new medium for me for established photographers in general. Kickstarter and crowdfunding was just starting to to grow. I was with Larry uh, together with Larry Towell from Magnum. I was one of the first more known photographers to use the medium, and I turned to Kickstarter uh, to send me back to Chernobyl. The Kickstarter campaign was successful, very successful. And I have to say, in a way, sadly so, because uh, Fukushima happened at the mm -hmm. same time. And it gave my return to Chernobyl and the Kickstarter campaign sad boost, I have to say. But it also showed that the danger of nuclear power is not a thing of the past. Many people try to label Chernobyl as a typical result of communist neglect. And Fukushima showed us that it was not a communist accident. It was an accident in a nuclear power station. And your pictures really aptly demonstrate that it's not over for the people who lived through it. The workers who went in there to try and restore some order and, and save lives, the, the families, not only those that were born there, but those who have been born since and how the radiation and all of that has impacted their lives 20, over 25 years later. I think that's really one of the most impactful things about the work is that Chernobyl doesn't just end up being some decrepit building that's radioactive. It becomes as much about the story of the people whose lives have been touched so terribly by it. There were 800,000, an estimated 800,000 so-called liquidators involved in the cleanup. They were brought in from all over the former Soviet Union and helped in the cleanup of the accident. There's an amazing book out. Uh, it's called The Voices of Chernobyl. When I reread the book, I really have tears in my eyes. It is the report of many of these people involved in the cleanup that went as far as needing to shoot the dogs and cats and animals in the zone because they could not adhere to the borders. Mm -hmm. Terrible experiences. And we don't know how many of these 800,000 people that are today spread out all over the former Soviet republics living in independent states have had health consequences as a result of Chernobyl. And when I returned in 2011, one of the most frightening quotes from one of the scientists working in the zone of Chernobyl said that we could 
built a fence, and inside that fence, within that specific area, not the whole zone, but certain parts of the zone, there is no human habitation for 24,000 years. Hmm. We can imagine maybe two or three generations ahead of us, but imagine 24,000 years, an area is not fit for human habitation. One of the ironies in looking at the book was the idea that they had these bureaucrats who were being honest about what was happening. They were putting people's lives at risk in order to protect their jobs or their reputation. And that you have these liquidators who years later are suffering from radiation poisoning, who've lost limbs, who tell you that if they had the chance to do it again, they would. Because they weren't doing it for themselves. They were doing it for their friends, their families, their country. And I, I was blown away by the contrast between incredible responsibility and bravery and then absolute irresponsibility. Well, the single people that started the cleanup, knowing that they were risking their lives, were very few. Others weren't even told the dangers. Mm. Uh, there's one picture in the app of a liquidator who had his third thyroid cancer operation. He had been a fireman and he was kind of asked with quotation marks uh, to help with the cleanup. Many of them were asked to help. If you deny, if you refuse, you get punished. That was the way of asking in the Soviet times. So he was part of a brigade of 300 people that had to destroy wells inside the zone to prevent people from returning back into the zone. They worked in the usual shift, two weeks on, two weeks off. After half of the allotted time, they were asked to give blood sa samples by the doctors. Doctors came in and took everybody's blood. The next day, they all were sent home with no information why. And now he had his third thyroid cancer operation, and he said that many of his colleagues have already died. That's just, just chilling. It's such a big story that you could easily be overwhelmed by it. So how do you plan in terms of what you shoot, who you photograph, particularly when you only have a sort of limited time to not only make your photographs, but to negotiate where you can get access to and who you can communicate with and all these amazing challenges to be able to capture enough images that help tell the full story of what you are trying to express with your camera. The way I work is that I do a lot of research ahead of time. I read books, I do research online, I even talk to scientists at the time before I go in. And then make, I make myself a checklist what subjects I need to cover to give it a full scale from a very personal level to a technical aspect to the results on the environment. But once I'm out in the field, I discover new things that I didn't even know about. 
So constantly asking questions. And I often compare photography to a ball game. And as a European, I always compare it to soccer. <laughs> the ultimate picture is like the goal kick in soccer. You may practice it in your training sessions to get the ball from here to there to there. But once you're out in the game, the better team follows its instincts. And you may have practiced many times your moves. You have to be intuitively reacting to the situation out on the field and for us in the field. And if I see something that leads me to that great picture rather than what I had pre-planned for that day, I have to follow my instincts out in the field. I drive my assistants sometimes crazy when I say, okay, today we're going to shoot landscapes because it is a, a great day for landscape photography, great light. And then uh, we, we go for two, uh, for two blocks and I see something more interesting <laughs> and we never go further away from our place where we stay than two blocks because we spent the whole day there. Yeah. Well, Chernobyl isn't the only time that you've been in the former Soviet Union slash Russia. You've done a lot of projects there. And for you, what's been the affinity of that country and its people for you and your work? I think all photography is personal. And my personal relationship with Russia started when I was so young that I didn't even understand the concept of the, uh, the word country. I was three years old living with my parents who were refugees after the war from a part in Czechoslovakia called Sudetenland in a small refugee room that served as kitchen, bedroom, living room all in one. I would listen to the sad and soothing voice of my father as he conjured images of people fighting through snowstorms, soldiers battling their way, other people hiding in stables and barns, afraid of the soldiers. And it was not until much later that I realized that my father was not telling bedtime stories, but that he was trying to shed himself of the terrible memories of war. My father had lived in a part of Europe where the borders frequently changed. And he, as an ethnic German, found himself living in Czechoslovakia. He was drafted into the Czechoslovakian army. And when Hitler annexed Czechoslovakia, my father became from a Czechoslovakian soldier one day, a German soldier the next. Mm. And as such, he was amongst the troops that invaded the Soviet Union, and he battled all his way to Stalingrad. He was lucky to survive. And after the war, uh, as a consequence, he was expelled uh, from his property in Czechoslovakia, and after the war, he really suffered from the memories of war. 
And so he told these stories all over again. Like a, a snake shedding a skin, he tried to shed himself from these terrible memories. Mm. Um, and it was not until much later that I understood what terrible burden uh, my parents' generation had put on themselves and the younger generation. I felt incredibly guilty for the deeds of my parents. And one of my reactions was to idolize everything that my parents' generation had tried to destroy, particularly mm. the Soviet Union. When I then got my first assignment as a photographer, as a young photographer, to go into Russia and the former Soviet Union, I found images that had been deeply ingrained into my mind through my father's stories. But out of guilt, I didn't allow myself to make critical pictures in a country that had suffered for so long through my parents' generation. Only uh, when Gorbachev himself opened the Iron Curtain, pulled away the veil, I allowed myself to incorporate into my pictures the socioeconomic realities of a country that was under Soviet rule for 70 years. Especially now, there's so many changes. We could spend hours probably talking about you know, the, the current, current political state and socioeconomic state of Russia, but you've been witness to it for quite a long time now. And what would you say is currently the appeal of that place to you? You travel a good amount, but you make that the destination you want to revisit. For you, what is the most captivating and interesting part of what's happening in that country today? What is really interesting is how the country and um, let me focus on Russia first, changes. Through globalization, we see that the young generation really starts to dress and feel and act like their Western counterparts. There are the pizza huts and the, and the Benetton stores all over the big cities in the former Soviet Union, specifically in Moscow and the Western Russian industrial centers where the changes occurred first. But there is a bittersweet realization that something gets lost. The soul of Russia gets lost through that onslaught of capitalism. And it was even a wild onslaught. It was the wild, wild East in the 90s. And I'm trying to find today where are these aspects of the Russian soul in the country. And I did find them partially with, this, uh, with the Russian Cossacks. I also did find them with the resurgence of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. They reflect that feeling of the Russian soul, which is a feeling of acceptance of suffering. It is the opposite of our Western well-being. It is a feeling of being connected to something divine. It is three drunks on a park bench discussing the meaning of life. It is people 
leaning their bodies against the stems of trees in the woods and reading, reading books. Hmm. It is the proverbial Russian soul. I grew up thinking of Russia as the evil empire. And there was no, there was wasn't much information in terms of Russia beyond the things that were politicians talked about. And your images have revealed that place in a way that I could never have imagined my own mind. What are you hoping that you do with your camera in terms of not just this work with Chernobyl? What are you hoping ultimately that your work does for people who both who live there? But for people around the world who may never visit that country, what is your role as a photographer, as a documentarian, ultimately to be? I think all my photography tries to help understanding that there is a diversity in people, in ethnic groups, but that diversity is a treasure that we have and not something that should be judged as something negative so that we see beyond that diversity the fundamental humanity of each person. And when I point at my camera at the circumstances in Russia, I think my images show that it is not the single person who is responsible for poverty, for the excesses of life, but it is a social and political aspect behind it that is responsible for the misgivings in our society. Well, the app that you have based on your your travels to Chernobyl is one of the more innovative ways that photographers are disseminating their work. Traditionally, it's been through magazines, but as we all know, magazines are, have a lust of an interest in publishing material like this. So this provides an outlet for it. How important is this now, not just this, but using technology in this way to share your work and to share the stories that you want to express? Is this for you the future of not this, this work, but work that you plan to do in the, in the near future? I never wanted to become one of these really old uh, photographers that is afraid of change. So I'm trying to embrace the new technologies as much as I can. I don't know how long it will last, you know. Think back, a floppy disk. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that long ago, but it's a thing of the past. But it is certainly looking forward. The iPad app as an interactive book it can add giving information about the process as much as the product. We seem to have in our society an interest of the making of the making. We have to be careful that we don't lose the off, the product itself, mm-hmm. by revealing and concentrating so much about the, uh, on the making. And I think this app really is a nice balance of both. It reveals some of the making. I have short segments of showing how I photograph in videos. It takes you inside the reactor on these 15 minutes uh, in there. At the same time, I think you see pictures 
that move you as well. And as the app itself goes, I don't know how long it's going to last. But what makes it different in today's environment for a photographer to survive is that we have to diversify. 20 years ago for me, it was easy. There was an assignment. I would go and shoot it. It would get published in a magazine and I would move on to the next assignment. And today there are so many different aspects of publication, of getting your word, uh, work on, and the word about your work out there. Exhibits, internet, still real books, magazine articles, mm-hmm. the app. We can't imagine what will be next, yeah. but there will be something. Do you find that it's a greater challenge today to maintain quote unquote your your business as a photographer now than it was before because of the changes in the magazine industry that at one point may have you know created the bulk of many photographers' work? How are you sort of striking that balance between the stories that you want to tell that no one really is interested in publishing in their publication, plus your need to be able to make a living to pursue the work that you really want to do. Kickstart is one of those means, but how about the other things that you need to do in order to maintain this? Uh, There are challenges, but there are also great opportunities. One of the opportunities is when you work your own personal projects, you don't need to think through the eyes and geared to the concepts of a, of a given publication. In Chernobyl, for example, had I been out there on assignment for a magazine, there would have been the expectation to come back with one specific story. While I was out there, I realized that a, a very strong aspect of the changes in the Chernobyl zone were that it was opening up for tourism. And I was free through Kickstarter, and because now through Kickstarter it became my own project, to redirect my focus on that, because that's what was new in the zone during my last trip, was a substantial part, and make that a substantial part of the story. And now in the app, we have a whole segment, a whole chapter, about tourism in the zone. And that's so surreal. It is. Well, my last question is the question I always ask all my guests, and I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be any photographer, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? As you already have Douglas Kirkland, as I saw, I would recommend Lauren Greenfield. And why? She has really done such a stunning work in a field here in California on youth culture, on expanding the medium then from the youth culture into more a look at the society in California as it symbolizes developments on a larger scale and she has moved on to film she just won the director's award at sundance for her movie the queen of versailles Hmm. well where can people find out more about your work in the app on my website gerdludwig.com 
and the app is available in the iTunes uh, store. Well, thank you so much, Gerd. It was a real pleasure and an honor to have, have the chance to sit down and talk with you. Thank you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.